A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Alice Parker, data engineer at DNB. We were talking about some of her early learnings around the user experience or UX um, from some of the interviews and her master's thesis and, and other uh, you know aspects to that. So here are some key takeaways or thoughts from Alice's point of view. Number one, it's easy for people to confuse user experience, or UX, and user interface, UI. But UX is a far is far deeper than most understand. We need to design systems and experiences that make working with data as a producer or a consumer far easier and more delightful. Number two, people are very willing to talk about their challenges. Show some empathy and give them the space to talk about what is holding them back, and what they could do if you worked with them to address those challenges. Number three, data consumers need three major things to work well with data. One, domain expertise. Two, time. And three, to be able to, you know, quote unquote, converse with their data. Number four, ensure your data quanta, or really any aspect of your data mesh implementation, are documented for all your user personas. There may be different needs for each persona type. A data scientist probably doesn't need as detailed of explanation of lineage if they can see the transformations compared to a business analyst or somebody in the line of business more. Number five, as part of designing our UX, we need to focus on, you know, quote unquote, how to help users achieve their goals effective, effic- effectively, efficiently, and with satisfaction. 
how you can minimize risks, and how you can enhance the maintenance of tasks to be completed effectively. I really liked that that quote. Number six, to get UX right, you have to understand, quote unquote, the limitations of the humans using it because you have to design your experience and your risk tolerances around those limitations, right? We all have limitations. Every persona has different types of limitations. You have to factor those in to get your user experience right. Number seven, quote unquote, systems and technologies evolve incredibly quickly, but unfortunately humans don't. So, you know, have some empathy for that. Um, You know, the human brain's processing power does not evolve at the same exponential rate as Moore's law. So take into account the limitations of cognitive load, right? And that you have to understand it's not just the initial learning, it's the, uh, as things change as well. And as people get more and more experience, they get more deeper and deeper into things. Number eight. It's easy to fall into the trap of building one-size-fits-all experiences, but in data mesh, especially as we raise people's data literacy, their, you know, their data capabilities, we need to make sure we understand persona needs and desires so we can design for them. Number nine, interviews are crucial to understand what your personas actually need. Speak with them, reflect back their pain, understand what they're trying to accomplish, and then work to build something that addresses their needs without being tied to any one use case, domain, or person. Number 10, your user experience will change and hopefully improve. Uh, Communicate with your users what you are doing and why. Bring them into the conversation. It's important that they understand you don't have a magic wand, but you do have a sympathetic ear. Number 11, and finally, prioritization is key to delivering on an improving user experience in data mesh. There will always be a deluge of requests. Figure out what are actual requirements instead of nice-to-haves, and then assess your capability to deliver and the cost-benefit of delivering. Then communicate your prioritization. The last thing people want to do is tell you, these, these are all my problems, and you say, yeah, yeah, I get it, and then you don't circle back with them. So, Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Alice Parker, who is a data engineer at DNB, which is a bank in Norway. And we're going to be talking about a lot of different things, but a lot around, um, you know, something that I was talking about well before even the podcast came out, which is DUCS, which is data user experience and how important it is and how we're going to talk about, you know, there's the consumer user experience, but there's also the producer and how we have to really focus on making this easy for everybody to participate and share information and and exchange that and how, you know, how we actually get the user requirements, how we actually can um, work with people to iterate that, that user experience. 
you know, how can we, Alice did uh, her master's thesis on data mesh in general and, you know, user things in that she's going to go into that a little bit deeper, but um, what we can learn from interviewing a lot of data consumers, what, what are the common themes and patterns that she saw and how you can actually do that yourself, because it's going to be different at every organization as well. And it's something you really should do. Um, and so we're going to talk about how everything has uh, the user experience and how that kind of flows through because that, that's what her master's thesis was on. So I'm excited about this because I've been talking about how important data user experience is for <laughs> almost since the start of the uh, of the community, you know, 18 plus months ago. So before we, we jump into that, uh, Alice, if you don't give, if you don't mind, please give people uh, a little bit of background on yourself and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Yep. Hi, Scott. Uh, thank you for inviting me on. Uh, I am from the UK originally, but I've been living here in Norway for quite a few years. Um, I've recently done a master's, which I'm sure we're going to about the thesis. Uh, but I am currently a data engineer at DMB, which is Norway's largest bank uh, on their data platform, which is self-serve. And we have consumers and producers across the whole enterprise. Um, and yeah, and you've, you've recently started talking as well about what DNB is doing. And I know you're, you're somewhat early in, in the journey, but like, I think it's, it's really interesting kind of, um, the, the transition as well from not talking about your, uh, implementation to talking about it. And, uh, you know, I want to encourage other people about out there to, to be brave and talk about it as well. So, um, so let, let's talk about, you, you know, you you have your master's in kind of the user experience side and designing user experience. So let's talk about what do you actually consider as user experience? And is it just command line interface and that's good enough? Or, you know, let, let's talk about it for the producers first and then we can talk about the consumers. But like when you think about user experience, what do you think most people are are missing or most people are thinking about Rather than what they, sh you know, what what do you think that there's the gaps when people think about? Oh, okay, we can just put this in front of software engineers and and move forward. Like, let's talk about that producer side first. Yeah, so it's a, a really huge topic. Um, human computer interaction is the the degree scheme, and um, you think traditionally of UX, which people may get confused with UI, thinking of the interface you see visually maybe going into uh, a voice interface or interacting at a very superficial level with the screen. But trying to think about what's behind the screen and what's in the system behind it means that you have quite a deep understanding of and uh, experience of how we interact with systems, how we interact with data, how we interact with computers. Um, we, I've seen this example, um, and I know that this happens in other industries. For example, in oil industries or um, energy, or energy in general industries, and um, maybe transport industries. Um, if you think about um, control rooms there, and you think about the teams that design those control rooms, the human factors they call it that take into consideration the. Um, human limitations of the people who are using these control rooms and we look at that you can think about that as um 
face value what you see the buttons on the screen but you could also look at what's behind it and what that does how these people react and the um the heavy machinery that they're using um and if you think about this interaction with the systems with um yeah uh, then you can uh, take this into the data world into architecture you could take it into software as well um and applications and look at how users work with data and work with applications and think about their limitations that they have yeah i think uh, you know somewhat it, it's it's funny because i think people would be like is, is that analogous where you, you're thinking about this heavy machinery and you know time to react and all these things of what what if there's a huge thing versus you know is data are we in that same um kind of do we need to to have it at that same experience level of okay we need this huge huge control panel and i think what p- people probably miss is how do we make it easier for people to do the right thing and make it um easier to avoid doing the wrong thing not necessarily yeah. harder to do the wrong thing but like easier to know how do we get there so yeah no so if you if you look um usability has a iso standard um where it's actually um, how to help users achieve their goals effectively, efficiently, and with satisfaction, how you can minimize risks, um, and how you can um, enhance the maintenance of tasks to be completed effectively. So if we think about how we can minimize risks of our systems, our data, and how we move data across different um, from different parts of the organization, this is exactly um, some of the biggest topics today with data architecture, um, working with data, and it all is hidden inside usability and how we use it and how we interact with it. So to be able to do that, you need to understand those limitations of the people using it. How, how much do you think that is designed for the now versus designed for the where we want them to be like and that we we up level them i know that's a a difficult question because it's it's a very theoretical but like do you when you're thinking about where people should be designing systems is it what can they do right now versus what could they do in the future if we train them correctly and like how do you how do you (laughs) kind of if you are doing it for what they could do in the future how do you make it so that there's that kind of um, cohesion point or whatever where, where they both end up uh, meeting in, in that future point? Because otherwise you're like you're you're constantly making it harder and harder because it's got more and more capabilities. And so then people have to keep up leveling. And like, how do you think about that balancing, you know, the kind of superpowers angle, uh, but they have to actually, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I want to say if they have to keep getting bitten by multiple, multiple radioactive spiders or anything like that. Like, how do you think about well, that? Systems and technologies evolve incredibly quickly, but unfortunately, humans don't. So <laughs> we can say that um, the the way that we interact, where the system that we interact with, the the application we interact with, that may change. But our understanding 
and or or how we understand or how we discover how we work and our cognitive processing is unlikely to change at the various at the same pace um as we we are in a human um so um yeah and when you think about but when you think about actually designing the system are you looking at what people have like if you were to just kind of have a generic recommendation you know for people that are doing this um that are designing for either the producer or the consumer and you're thinking about user experience and things are you do you generally recommend that people do what people are capable of now versus what what you think they could be capable of and then you you kind of iterate as they add additional capabilities, just because I, I think what we constantly see, especially you know, when you think about the way most data engineers think about how people should do data, and then you're trying to put that in front of a software engineer that doesn't really know how to do data, doesn't know how to manage you know the the transformations and the you know all, all the different aspects of this. That when you're putting things in front of people that don't know how to use them yet does that lead to a good user experience? Like what would you recommend people? Is it to kind of hide the, the extra features and then, okay, you've now unlocked this and you now have the, your, you know, your additional capabilities or how would you talk to people about not scaring people off and, and helping them unlock what they can do now and then help them unlock what they can do in the future as well? Yeah. So um, let's start with who the user is. And you cannot think, you can't group everyone in the same pot. Um, What I like to do is um, split it up. You have the producer and you have the consumer. And um, inside that, let's start with the consumer. We often think, and it's, if you think about visual analytics or um, you can think about creating dashboards and storytelling for those end business users, their experience, they're the end user we often think about. But then you go, a step back and you've got the data scientists who are consuming data you've got data engineers who are consuming data um, and data and en- uh, analysts consuming data you've got their business owners um on the other side you've got producers you've got um data engineers you've got software developers and software engineers you've got um data scientists and you've got their business owners as well and then in the middle you've got the platform and the platform engineers, because um, we are users too of our own platform, and we should also be thought about as users. And um, you've also got data stewards and people working with data governance. They are also part of this system, and each one of them will have a different requirement, a different understanding, different perception of how the system works, and also their yeah their own evolution of technical ability as it's coming about as the system changes and um, each one needs to be spoken to and understood how they how they understand how their how their worldview is of the system they're different um they're different ontologies i guess because uh, you can be talking to one about a certain certain tool and another another person on the other side would see it completely different 
um, and not just talking about ontology of the actual data, but actually of the systems. Um, and um, so each one has a different challenge. Each one has a different understanding um, and a different ability. And when you're talking about each one, you're talking about kind of personas. You're not talking about each individual person, correct? I just want to be... Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be very hard with uh, several hundred uh, people to go and talk to. Um, but we can start with uh, getting... So people already do this with uh, products, um, with applications like apps on your phone. They go out and do uh, user research on um, their users to understand them and they so this is where my thesis came in and I started um, interviewing people in the bank uh, before I joined um, after finishing Um, so I went in and I asked the consumers their experience of working with data where their challenges were and these were just consumers in a particular area of the of the bank and um and how they worked with it, how they um, overcome it, how they would see um, what they would need as a requirement, and then started to build from that some user requirements that could be later be used when um, evolving into the next uh, stage, because all of this is an evolution slowly and taking and iterating on people's experiences, their challenges as well. Uh, and going and then uh, the work doesn't finish there it goes in ask the producers as well um ask more consumers and ask more producers again <laughs> so i think that what you just said there might intimidate a lot of people right of okay i have to go and i have to do these samplings of you know a few data scientists, a few business analysts, a few uh, data engineers, a few platform engineers, a few business owners, and a few software developers, and then you know making sure that I've got both the perspe- or perspectives of the consumer and producer, and I'm going to end up with you know a hundred of these interviews. And you're saying I have to hit all of their requirements, which I, I don't think you were saying that, but like, how do you start to look at okay, I've got this massive, massive list of everything people have said. How do I actually start to extract out the requirements and then start to stack rank them? And, and where where do I put those in? And you think about value add versus complexity and you know what's table stakes, what's not. It's, it's a difficult, difficult process, I think, or at least conceptually, it's very difficult. Is it that you found when you were doing this that certain things started to kind of ring through more often and you did find some kind of easy table stakes or that you you were like, hey, I'm going to try and hit your, you know, at least two of your top four for each of these um, groups. And so that way I can kind of mix and match and, and balance between desires and like needs, but also complexity of building this because a lot of people are are stuck on okay i have to go build this this very very complicated platform before we can get started versus the other aspect as to how can we actually get something into people's hands and get some fast feedback and iterate and iterate and iterate and so you know do i have to plan this out 6 months a year in advance and i have to have this huge roadmap versus the other like you know very very complex question but like 
How do you get people confident that they can move forward on building something that's going to help people and, and take these these conversations and actually move forward with them? Yeah, this doesn't um, need to happen in a, in a waterfall environment. This works in an agile uh, way, which is what we're doing. Uh, so this happens alongside those who are creating the platform um, and just start, iterate, um, uh, you can't talk to everyone. Uh, Facebook does UX. They have the, the do they have a billion users? I mean, they at least have millions of users. Um, and um, the um, everyone has a role to play and everyone can think about their users. So if you are building a data product um, or the uh, the architectural quantum as well, or just a data product, just if you have data users, you can think about your consumers. If you have a data platform, you can think about your users. If you have, um, well, if, if you have um, reports, you can think about your users. And um, if you have one minute part in that, in that uh, big role, you still think about who is your user. Uh, so, so this can happen on a macro level, and it can happen um, on on a more detailed scale. So, if if everyone can start to think about who is it that I'm building this for, then and and speak to that person uh, physically, perhaps uh, it doesn't have to be a formal uh, user research interview. It can just be talking to them, and I think that quite a lot of um, people already do this, um, but just begin to bring out that um, user, that that empathy for those users, um, not thinking, and also thinking about users in a wider range than just the users of um, of an application on the uh, on the front end. So, but when you do think about prioritization, like, I mean, you know, without getting too specific to anything that, that D&B did or anything or is doing, but when you think about this, like you said, there, there are all these different personas. So are you kind of, you're, are you looking at the platform as if it is one entity or are you kind of breaking it down into more the micro and saying, hey, let's think about features. Let's think about certain aspects of, of capabilities and things like that, rather than I need to have this overarching thing, because I think that's where people think about the microlith or the, the monolith versus microservices. And, you know, or you can even start to build microliths. And so then you're in real trouble because you've got tight coupling, but you've got everything distribution <laughs> and all of that. So when you're thinking about building out the capabilities, especially around the platform, how do you start to move forward? How do you, is it that you're saying, okay, we're going to serve one or, or how would you recommend, right? Not even like exactly asking you to say, this is the way everybody should do it. But like, when you're thinking about that, people are, are very, very stuck. So how do we, what, what can we tell them that would get them to be comfortable making some progress, even if it's not perfect progress, right? Like everybody tries to get everything perfect and that's never going to work. 
so this isn't done in a on a fresh sheet of paper this is done in a system that's already moving at a rapid pace already having lots of changes there's already products and pilots and um, products being made when you go out to make these user interviews and talk to your users so you can start to feed in some that can be easy wins say okay that's something that we could do right now it could be that the um that the the talk has just made a an, an awareness of an issue that could be solved um, rather than anything technical but just uh, oh we didn't think about that um, and that's something we should do now or it could be something further down the line uh, I know that um, someone was talking about uh, real time um, for their particular set of data which is um, far from happening on that particular user case in the next year or two years. And whilst they could say, yes, that is a a requirement for them and their needs, uh, it may not be possible. And so some some of these requirements, some of these um, may need to happen further down the line, Um, but uh, start to prioritize what can be done um, and narrow it down. When you look at um, how people interact with data, uh, I began to, uh, it's from the research I did for my writing the thesis, from talking with people, um, I began to, I found three major themes for how they worked with their data and you can keep these in mind when you're beginning to um, to design for these systems so um, and they're, they're a combination of um, two main articles one's Muller um, et al which is uh, how data science workers work with data the other one is um, the emerging role of data scientists on software developing teams by Kim et al so The first one is an IBM research and the second is a Microsoft research. And um, together, um, it kind of sums up that people need some domain expertise. They need time and they need to uh, converse with their data. So have a conversation with that data. So from talking with consumers, we were able to also um, work out that this was needed. Um, and particularly with these consumers, they need to know where their data is. Um, so they need to know that it exists. Um, you can't work or interact with your data if you don't know it exists. Uh, they need to understand their data. And um, then they need to work with it, um, think of interoperability. And finally, they need to trust it, which is a, whilst it can exist, without the first three, although I'd say it's pretty hard to trust data that you don't know of. Um, The first three working well, know, understand, and work means that you trust your data better. Um, I think perhaps that question went off on a little tangent there. (laughs) 
No, but I, I think what you're talking about is that I think what a lot of people in data haven't had when I'm having these conversations is uh, I always uh, reference the movie Office Space. And there's a, a guy whose role he's talking about is to take the, the requirements from the uh, customers and bring it to the engineers. And then, you know, they dig in and they find out that it's usually his assistant that's doing it, not him. And it's like, but what do you do here? And I think a lot of what you're talking about is actually going and having these these conversations with a very specific point in mind, but also kind of not, right? That you leave the lines of, of communication open so, and that, that you also encourage them to have the lines of communication open with their the consumers and the producers directly talking with each other, but that you're you're talking to the consumers about what are you actually trying to do? What do you need? What are the capabilities? And that you're bringing that in and you're not doing the work of the producers for them. And that that is a bit of a different shift and making sure that they understand how can they like how would you be able to, um, you know, find your data? Let's talk about that, right? Know where it is. Let's go and talk about how you find it. Let's talk about how you understand it. Is it that there is a, um, so, you know, there's the data catalog and then what's actually in the documentation? Like, what do you actually need? What should we be kind of standardizing around and saying everybody needs this? And it's like, well, I just needed a good description of what it is. Okay, but what does that actually mean? Like what like how do we how do we standardize that so that everybody can it's not just willy-nilly descriptions. It's there is um certain aspects to it. And then like how do you actually want to work with it? Right? Oh, oh, well, I want to pull this into Excel. It's like, okay, well then we'll work to enable you to to do that. We don't want you to do that for the, you know, we want you to do that for kind of poking around and testing, but let's get you to a place where you can work with it in a scalable way that other people can leverage that as well. But yes, it's fine that if your way of working, of of poking at things is in Excel, like let's, let's make sure that you have that, but that you do that. And then, then the people, once they understand what it is and they understand what it isn't, and they understand how far they can trust it, then they know that they can trust it. So it becomes this thing. But a lot of what you're talking about is being kind of this person in the middle and extracting this information that hasn't typically been categorized into these buckets, right? Where where it's been informal conversations, but it hasn't been like, let's get explicit about what we're actually trying to achieve from this and then actually having that result in things instead of just conversation. Exactly. And you mentioned documentation. So it's quite easy that you say, okay, I've documented that. But who have you documented it for? Why have you documented it? And did you just document it for one reason? There could be several reasons for this documentation. And where did you document it? Um, it could be that documentation needs to lay in several different places, which could be awkward. So then it would be another person's responsibility to think how can we make sure um, data producers have a an easier time, a better experience documenting data. How can we make documentation automated in different places for the right purpose? 
But when you are introducing a new technology, you need to document for um, the new technology and you also need to document for the data in that new technology. Uh, you need to document for the different users of that technology um, and for the people also maintaining that technology. So there's several different ways you can start to break down that um, requirement, user requirement, after you've started talking to someone. Documentation, for example, um, or knowing, knowing and discovering data. And uh, so Carlos Sauna was on and he was talking about like uh, data products documentation. And what he said was, look, if you can't feasibly explain everything to everyone ever, right? You can't, you can't understand somebody's context well enough to be able to explain it to, you know, uh, trying to explain something to my dog and trying to say, hey, don't bark at that person because that's not nice. She doesn't really get it, right? Like, so... And, you know, I don't want to call people, you know, dogs or anything, but there's people who have contacts and people who don't. And so how do you think about even that, that aspect of here's how far you should be going with your documentation? What he said was, if you don't know the domain, you shouldn't be able to figure out exactly how the domain works just from the documentation, because that puts way too much of a burden on the documentation creator right? That they have to explain exactly how the domain works as well as what's in the data product and how that works. But if you know the domain, you should be able to understand exactly what this is talking about and how it functions and and your SLAs and all that stuff. So when you think about that documentation process, when you think about that user empathy, is it that you kind of create, are you telling people to look to create a fast button to get in touch if they need to, or like how much of the white space are you asking them to paint when you do think about documentation? And are you evolving your kind of concept of documentation of at the start, we're going to do this and it's not perfect for anybody, but it's, it's a low bar for the producer and then consumer will help you and make sure that you get to what you need or like, how are you looking at that? Because documentation is such an important part of the user experience, I think. Yeah, exactly. So um, let's say I'm going to, I know how to ride a bike and I'm going to document that so I can tell you how to ride a bike. It's going to be very hard to get that knowledge of riding a bike through a piece of paper and that experience of doing it. There are ways we could get around it so that it makes it an easier time for you to gain that experience to ride a bike. Um, we can put out some warning notes, like please don't try this on the motorway for the first time. Um, and we can set up a conversation. We could do some videos, um, which of course is debatable how often you could do that in data. Um, but there there are ways to mitigate that and build it up and this isn't as simple as riding a bike. There are so many different factors, but you can break them down into that and think about that when you have that domain expertise, it's like riding a bike because you have that 
extra bit of understanding to get you to work with that data that makes it easier to do. And now you've got to tell it to someone else who doesn't have that, who hasn't ridden the bike before, or who maybe doesn't ride the bike as much. Yeah. So how can we document with that understanding? I think at least understanding that when you document that the other person may not have that domain expertise, whether that domain expertise is a business domain or if it's a technical um, technical domain, that's something that uh, the person documenting needs to take into account. Yeah, and, and I think there are some interesting ways that have been coming out. So Tim Tischler talked about kind of show and tells where you you can kind of say, okay, I'm going to record this so other people that come to this later can understand. I'm going to tell you like my bit and I'm going to talk for, you know, of an hour long session, I'm going to talk for 15, 20 minutes about the data product. I'm going to do, you know, a little bit of the the showing and like actually do like a video tour or whatever of, hey, we're going to show you what this table is and what it's trying to accomplish. And we're going to show you this aspect, or here's a visualization that we created from this, or here's the SLAs and here's why we picked the SLAs and things like that. But then the last, you know, 40 to 45 minutes is people asking questions and that it's that exchange of context. And, and I mean, I think where we'll end up going as well is that every data product will have, you know, a couple of five to 10 minute uh, videos from each of the, the people that created it. So there's like documentation is like, this is the official only one perspective of it versus multiple people having perspectives. And then I think we'll actually even have consumers giving their own perspectives as to here's what I'm trying to consume from this. And here's why I like it, or here's here's the thing that I found the most useful from this, and that you can have that kind of multiple perspectives on the same thing. So if somebody just is like, I just need, you know, I just need customer ID and time of order, and that's all I need from this. Okay, that's that's not a big deal. Boom, I'm just going to grab it from this data product. But if somebody really wants to dig in, getting those multiple perspectives instead of documentation feels like this is the official only answer. And that's not the way human cognition works. It's not the way like we actually do that. But you can also extremely overload people and be like, you have to now watch this two hour, three hours of, of video to be able to understand what this uh, data product is. So and telling the data producer to make that as well. I think we'd scare quite a few off right now if we said each time you make a data product, you're going to be making some videos on it as well. At this stage, maybe quite scary. However, I have already said, I can admit that I have asked people, that presentation was fantastic. Please make sure you record it. When they're talking not just about a, a data product, but they're talking about... Um, an architecture part of the of the technology and the way that it they communicate it can really make that um uh light bulb switch on and that um if that is going to be used by a lot of users then um the investment of that time to create that video is worth it and um yeah from my perspective, I, I 
I think we do need very low friction ways of sharing context. So like, I don't think that needs to be a presentation versus you have uh, five sets of questions. I'm trying to, I'm trying to do this with the community. I'm trying to, to work with um, kind of a foundation to hand it over so that they have it and they can build out these things where I keep talking about how can we get to low friction context sharing? So you have a, a thing where multiple people from the same data product being produced, you give them five standard questions and they just kind of record their answers to these five questions. They don't build a presentation. They spend, okay, I'm going to look at the, the questions for five minutes and, and, you know, and think, and then I'm going to record myself for five minutes and that's 10 minutes of time. And you've saved, you know, 20 hours of back and forth questions and, you know, especially on Slack, instead of just getting in a call and, and exchanging context, especially if you're kind of a globally distributed company and you don't have good time overlaps. You know, I'm trying to work with people in, in like India to, to do recordings or there's somebody I'm working with in Taipei and, you know, I, they're like 14 hours off. So like trying to find good times to overlap, it just doesn't work. So I think exactly what you're talking about. Is, it, yeah. It would have a dream to, if you could get all these uh, producers to do that. And if you think about it as well, aren't all of us who work in tech, we've learned from YouTube. I wouldn't say everything we've learned is from YouTube, but we are all uh, guilty of going onto YouTube to, uh, to look up how to do something, to understand something and um get some piece of code a better understanding of that and uh, if we could do that with our own colleagues and share that um knowledge uh, we already do and i'm sure many other companies the workshops and or and user cases but if you go and do it for a way that's recorded and shared afterwards on user satisfaction will go up um and and it's all about building that empathy for that user so so if that we say that's the end goal to have this full-blown empathy and understanding how can we get there um from where we are today um because this is uh, every single person is the user and uh, those people making those videos are the users as well those people producing the data and um, sharing that knowledge and writing that documentation, they are users of the technologies they're working with. Yeah, I, I kind of think of documentation as well as the so tell me about yourself question, which I, is the worst interview question of all time, versus what you were talking about of the auto documentation and kind of setting up the the frameworks for here's what you should be telling people, right? And the more that we can lower friction to somebody being able to share context, right? Like this is part of why when I do these episodes, I say, let's, let's plan out some talking points. But, you know, I mean, we, we've hit on a lot of our, our talking points throughout what we're, we're talking about, but it's not like I'm going to give you the exact questions and ask you to, to just respond. But like, I'm also guiding people through a conversation, right? I'm guiding people through guests, through the questions that are coming up and then trying to put it in their own context. And I think 
lowering that friction to sharing context is an incredibly difficult uh, problem. And so, you know, and it's kind of the context about the context, right? When you think about, okay, I'm sharing my data and then I'm sharing the information about the information that I'm sharing, like, and, and what is the point? Like, do I have to make it so that everybody can inherently understand it? You know, people talking about your data model should be self-describing. And I just say, go sit in the corner. You're in timeout because like self-describing for whom? Right. Like, okay, if my mom comes in and looks at this, she's she's far better with like Excel than my dad is. So my dad would be way worse. But if my mom were to come in and and look at a data model, is she supposed to be able to understand it inherently and what it's exactly trying to share, especially if she doesn't understand the domain, that type of level, it's it's putting such a massive burden on the producer. And so we do have to think about you know, kind of circling back to the user experience. So much of this is, you said the producers, it's not just the consumers, it's everybody is, it's, it's a society within the organization about how, how do we make this so that we can maximize a lot of the value with minimizing the effort and the cognitive load and the, you know, minimizing the pressure on people and making it so that people can feel like they understand without getting frustrated. And like, how does that circle through? You've had so many of these conversations. You were interviewing so many data consumers. Data consumers, when you talk to them in general, are really, well, they're not really, really frustrated. It's more the data engineers trying to communicate between the producers and the consumers and doing all the work um, in the the kind of uh, centralized data team model that are super. But like data consumers aren't typically happy. So with what they're getting, they're they're having to do a lot of the work to clean up and to really understand, can I trust this? How can I trust this? So like, I guess I'm not even sure what the question should be from this, but I want to give you space to react to a lot of what I just said there. Like, what what are your thoughts there? Where where do you think we move forward with? How can you move forward with these? Is it just go and talk to people and just have the conversations, have the empathy, mark it down and look for the patterns or like, how do people actually start to do this user research and get benefit from it? It's just one foot forward, I think, at a time. And yes, there's some consumers that are incredibly frustrated that this current um, data product cycle is long far too long and each step forward goes with the aim of making sure that we iterate on a on a faster um, way in a more efficient way that we begin to bridge that gap between the producer and the consumer until they begin to not need the um the platform in the middle apart from to facilitate um, the technical requirements um, that a producer can just stand up and say walk over to the consumer and say yes I've uh, I've taken in your uh, request we've done that um, and uh, have let the platform take up that responsibility of facilitating both those sides um to shorten that cycle so that they also iterate faster um 
it's a it's a very very long road so just one step at a time the, the journey of a thousand miles starts with one step right like yeah. that i think people in tech want it to be solved now they want to throw something at it and say this is solved versus especially in data we haven't had room to iterate very well because the the solutions and the technologies that we've had have made the cost of change and iteration very, very difficult and very high. And there's people who will also say, and we can't solve it now. But that doesn't mean you don't also not take that journey because what you can't solve today, you can solve next week maybe or the week after or maybe in a few more weeks, months, years, you get there closer and closer. Well, and, and that there's a solution, right? That's not the way software engineering looks at the world. There isn't a solution. It's good for now. It's we've made it better. And that's not something like data. We need to stop thinking about it as a one or a zero Versus information has, you know, context, it's, it's gray areas, right? And, you know, this might be, you know, way more dark than it is light. And this may be, you know, this other thing may be way more light than it is dark, but there aren't really absolutes in, in almost any cases in data because you need the context around it, right? It doesn't matter if it's a one or a zero, unless you understand what that one or that zero actually means. Exactly. There's no silver bullet which was probably one of my favorite papers I read being a student. Is there a specific <laughs> paper that, that yes, kind of came Fred that? Brooks. Fred Brooks in the, I'm going to say, that either the 50s or the 70s came up with this um, paper where he wrote, there's no silver bullet. I, didn't, I thought that might just have been a really old thing about werewolves or something like that, that there is no silver bullet like that. It's a, a myth, but it's awesome that there's an actual but Maybe paper. he took it from somewhere else, but it's uh, specific to, to architecture, that there is no silver bullet, no silver perfect architecture for, um, for software, um, for data. And so, I mean, we've, we've talked about a whole bunch of different things, but I, I kind of want to circle back to, do you have some concrete advice or some concrete ways of working for people that are trying to take these user requests and rolling them up into the greater whole? Like you, you did this, right? You, you spent your, your master's thesis on this and, and we, we, we talked about it, that it's, it's right now you it's more that you would have to pare down a massive amount to, to actually publish it than anything else. But like, that's kind of the thing is you get this massive flow of information and then you're, you're trying to work to that prioritization. Like how, how do you one take in the information? Is it just people are very willing to, to do these interviews or not, but then two, how do you look at, prioritization. And then three, I think a big part is the communication. So let's start from the one of like, how do you go and get this information? I think we've covered that, but I want to see if there's anything else that you would say about, you know, is there hidden requirements that people don't know about? Or like, what what, what are you doing to actually extract from them their user requirements? So if you go and ask someone, I want to talk to you about the challenges you're facing, people are often very willing because they begin to think someone 
someone is here to take into account, um, to show some empathy. They they love to talk about those challenges. Um, they hopefully feel gratitude that um, not in a patronizing way, of course, um, but in a way that um, someone is showing light on this. Um, and this is a time that we can solve it together. Um, I started this by going through Jamak Dagani's um, data product characteristics, asking them, how do you understand discoverability? What challenges do you face with discoverability and so forth throughout each characteristic one by one? And you begin to notice some are relevant to a particular user, but um, you also begin to identify the different user groups as well. Was there anything that really surprised you when when talking to the different user groups about like the requirements or were they relatively the same? Were they relatively overlapping? Because I think of people saying, oh, a, a you know business owner is going to have way, way different requirements than a data scientist. But is it like, I just need to understand and be able to use the data? Or like, was there anything that came through that was so surprising or, or not surprising about that? Oh, yeah, it's coming up to a year since I have asked those first questions. Um, but I think that was where it started to, I remember being surprised um, with some of these responses. And I think I could relate from reading Jamak Dagani's book to how it, well, she could mirror people in the room. And that probably surprised almost word to word um, what they were saying. Uh, so, so I think a lot of what you're saying there is just that um, it was kind of a broad spectrum, even across the, the different things, but the same things were coming through that a lot of people there wasn't really any major surprises versus when you looked at kind of what it, th these are known quantities, right? Like these problems, you feel like maybe they should have been solved because they are known quantities, but nobody's really directly tackled them. You know, talking about what Jamak said of like the, the same things you heard were the things in her book. So why haven't we been tackling these? But then like the second part of the question was like, then you take in the requirements what what practical advice would you give for people to prioritize? Prioritize. So the platform may be biased as someone who is working in the platform. Um, but uh, that is the glue, if I can be obnoxious to say that. Is that the right word? Um <laughs> is the glue between those consumers and the producers because, uh, yes, they can go out and do that by themselves, but uh, on on an organization level that is huge, you need to be able to discover, uh, place all these technologies um, together to, to facilitate those producers in, an, in a way that makes it usable for them um yeah so start 
building that platform up, start getting those producers to think about their users and getting those platform engineers to think about the producers. And and when thinking about the platform capabilities, was there anything where you said, hey, this we found that this is table stakes or like, is was there anything where you just went, okay, like this was the thing, like that's, that's, I'm trying to get people to be able to feel like they can move forward. Was there anything where you went, yeah, okay. We served like, um, JGP at PayPal. They served the data scientists first, right? They, they went and they served the data scientists first. So they said, okay, this is our main audience. We're going to we're going to go with that uh, main yeah. audience first and then move forward. So was there anything you saw there? Yeah, so uh, DMB's data platform already serves hundreds of data scientists um, and they do a fantastic job with that. Uh, and then we have now got to the stage where we can think more than data scientists and making that glue and the self-serve um easier more efficient um and i think to go into those um what we have already done in terms of the self-serve you may have to get on uh our fantastic head of platforms (laughs) (laughs) rather than me to talk more about that Mm. yeah and and the the last part of it, and you know, and then uh, we'll we'll love to wrap up on it. Is though, how do you then communicate back to people and say, "Hey, we're not going to go and and serve your requirement right now," or we have it on what we're planning to do, but that kind of feedback loop because you went and you you talked to them and you listened to their pain, and you know, Jen Tedro when she was on said, a lot of times when you say we're not going to solve this but people feel heard that they're okay with it because they go, I was heard, right? Like, even though you're not solving my problem right now, but like, do you have any practical advice? Because I think a lot of people are concerned about opening the can of worms, right? Of exactly, if I open this up, I'm going to, people want me to solve it immediately because I finally listened to them. And you may, exactly, so you may even get a consumer that will just pour out everything to you and expect you to fix the world for them. And you may you may have someone who comes with a very realistic need, but you also see it as, unfortunately, it's going to need X, Y, and Z to be solved. And maybe helping them understand why it can't be solved as soon as they want it to be solved, to show them the timeline, to show them what's being done in a place. Um, is enough to buy time until it can be solved or uh, another solution can be found. Yeah. And and I think, I can't remember who it was, but somebody was talking about Band-Aid solutions versus not. And you go, hey, we're going to put this in place, but it's going to get ripped off. Right. So, you know, we're going to put this thing in place, but there's uh, there's future pain in replacing it. And you have to understand that this thing isn't the long term fix and that we have to put that in. But it's going to deteriorate. Right. Your bandit. And I don't know, like, 
you throw a Band-Aid on your hands and then, you know, every time you go to the bathroom, you're washing your hands and that Band-Aid starts to fall off more and more. And, you know, you're, you're reattaching it a bunch by the end of the day or whatever. And so I, I think that communication ends up being key. I just, you know, I, I think people are afraid of going back to people and saying, not now. And that's, that's been a, a thing. So we, we've covered a whole, whole heck of a lot of things. A- anything we didn't cover that you wanted to, or any way you'd want to kind of wrap up the episode? No, I think that's, uh, we've covered a lot. It's been. Uh... <laughs> awesome. And then uh, I'm sure there are going to be a lot of people that would love to follow up. Uh, where's the best place? Anything that specific that you would like them following up about? Um, people can contact me on LinkedIn, first of all. Um, and everything is always interesting to talk about. Um, always great to hear from people in finance, um, people interested in usability, user experience with data as well. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, Alice, again, thank you so much for your time today. And as well, thank you everyone out there for listening. Thank you. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Alice Parker, data engineer at DNB. You can find a link to her LinkedIn and a few of the resources she mentioned in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.